Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman. I'm here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. Hey, Ellen. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. So our intro question for the day, Jen, what is the scariest thing you've ever done? Oh, wow. That's a hard one. I've done a lot of really scary things. Did you just do like the Jaws music in the background? I was. I was going to see if we could have that playing in the background. Yes, absolutely. Um, I do not swim very well, so that is also scary. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I think, gosh, when we moved to England a number of years ago, uh, my little one was little, you know, like a school, like elementary school age or U.S. version of elementary school age. And I went to like the version of the their equivalent of the PTA meeting because mm-hmm. I was like I'm just gonna PTA go and I'm gonna be a, scary. Like, that is fair right there I, right and I had been to like the US ones and they had been super scary but also I figured that was a good way to like become involved and like know what was going on in my child's school because we were we were new there and all that good stuff and I walked in and there were five people in the room and they sadly looked around and they said nobody has stepped up we're gonna disband the PTA and somebody steps up right now and says that they will be the president of the PTA and I was like you can't do that like that's Mm. not like that's not fair to kids and I just started I just came here you can't do that that's what I I basically did I said um I'm an American and I don't know anything (laughs) about anything here like culturally like things are different I said but I'll do it. I said, if somebody else will help me. And the funny thing is that there was actually a woman from Scotland who also was like, I'll do it too. So we were like, so I stepped up, but I was terrified out of my mind. And then she got pregnant like two weeks (gasps) later and she had to like step down from doing it. So I really did. It was, it was really, really scary. I spent actually two years like living in total fear that I was going to make an entire international incident and blunder. So (laughs) what about you? How did it turn out? Oh, oh, yeah. So that? um, Sure. I may have already, I think we've talked about this before, but yeah, they they were trying to raise funds for a school playground because they didn't actually have a playground there. Like it's really strange culturally, like kids basically play in big cement lots for their recess. Mm. And, but So they had this huge space. It was gorgeous. And they were like, we really want a playground. So then I was like, okay, well, we'll work on raising funds. And they're like, we've been working on this for years. It's never going to happen. I was like, I will make it happen. And not only did we raise enough funds to make one playground, it's actually split into two age group areas. We actually raised enough to make two playgrounds. So one for the littler kids and one for the bigger kids. And they named the playgrounds after me. So I have a playground named after me in Amersham, England. Do you have a picture? We should sit, we should. I have link a to picture of me <laughs> with, I'd already moved back to the United States once they ground broke. Mm. Um, I have a picture of the plaque. I have a picture of me holding the plaque because they presented it to me before I moved. Oh, and then right. somebody took like a grainy picture of it afterwards and sent it to me. So I have like a picture of it after. <laughs> but you need a field trip to go see your playground. Field trip I, totally think once things open up we should have a field trip and go see my playground um but what about you what is the scariest thing you've ever done oh starting a business starting a podcast those are up there yeah um but a recent one was doing a ted talk where honestly i felt like i was going to throw up when i mentioned it to people even (laughs) 
I'm so nervous. Um, and I, it's not that I'm afraid to speak in front of, oh, okay, maybe a little bit afraid to, to speak in front of people, but I do it enough. I think it wouldn't right, be a big right. deal. You, just nobody knows the difference, whether you're afraid <sighs> or not. But for some right? reason, this TED Talk really terrified me being on the big stage and getting a dressing room. It was like, it was definitely a fun experience. Um, but one of the cool things about the TED Talk is I did get to speak about assisted reproductive technology and a little bit about posture misconception as well, which is the topic of our interview today. And I was so excited to have these guests on. They are superstars and this case is so fascinating to me. So um, let's, let's share it. Let's go. Welcome to the podcast, attorneys Casey DePaula and Joe Williams. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure people will see from the description, but the flavor of what we're talking about being posthumous uh, reproduction. And I was so excited for you guys to come on being the attorneys in probably the biggest news case that we've ever seen about posthumous conception, the Peter Zoo case. But before we go into all the details, let's start with a little bit of introduction. Do you guys want to tell us a little bit about yourselves and kind of what brought you to this area of law? Sure. So I'll go first. My name is Joe Williams. Um, I am an adoption and assisted reproduction attorney in Albany, New York. Um, I have been working in in this field for for several years. And um, as we'll talk about a little bit more later on, we got involved uh, a couple of years ago in some of these cases involving posthumous reproduction. And it was relatively new. Um, It was new to us. It was new as far as the, the law, there wasn't a whole lot of law out there about it. Yeah. So we sort of jumped in and, and, and sort of tried to figure it out and navigate how to handle these cases. And we're successful and we've handled several of them since then. So, um, you know, it's been really, really interesting, really. Um, it's been an interesting uh, sort of niche of the law that we've gotten involved in. Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, Casey, do you want to share a little bit about your background as well? Sure. Um, So I'm also an adoption and assisted reproduction attorney. Um, Joe and I work together um, at the same firm in Albany, New York. Um, And I've been doing this for uh, this work for about a decade now. And then Joe and I also actually um, run uh, New York Surrogacy Center together, which is a surrogacy matching program that's licensed in New York. Nice. Um, Okay. So for listeners who are new to the concept, how do you explain posthumous conception to those you meet at a party, for example? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So the scenario that we're really going to be talking about when we talk about posthumous reproduction and the retrieval of gametes posthumously, um, you know, the scenario that you can kind of picture is, you know, if someone is unexpectedly involved in some sort of, of accident or trauma of some sort, which ends their life or puts them into a sort of a vegetative state, um, you know, brain dead for lack of a better term. Um, and their spouse, partner, family member wants to preserve their genetic material. And typically we're talking about sperm, um, so that they can reproduce and have a child or children even after the person is deceased. So the classic scenario, um, you know, if you can sort of just, just to give you an example of kind of what we're talking about it to contextualize, If you have a young couple, just, you know, an example, you have a young couple, perhaps they're newlyweds, they haven't had any children yet, um, but they were planning to. Um, And then 
the husband or the partner is involved in some type of an accident, a car accident, whatever it may be, and ends up on life support. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife or his girlfriend still wants to be able to have the opportunity to have children with him, you know, biological children. Um, and in order to do that, she would need to retrieve and pres- uh, preserve his sperm in order for that to be a possibility once he was deceased. So that's sort of the concept of, of, uh, of posthumous retrieval. Uh, it's, it's the retrieval of gametes. And, and in this case, we'd be talking about sperm from an individual either after they're deceased or while they're on life support you know, in, with death being imminent um, and then being able to then use that material that's been retrieved for purposes of reproduction in the future. Yeah. And how did you get into these? I mean, how, that first case, were you like, oh, there's very little law. I don't know if this is possible. How did, how did that happen? Yeah, yes. so, yeah go ahead, Case. I was just going to say, so the way it kind of unfolded was crazy. We had seen this fact pattern for this case kind of circling around some different assisted reproduction listservs that we were on. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, it's in our state, but it wasn't geographically that close to us. So I was just kind of watching to see how it unfolded and wanted to see how it um, turned out. And then, you know, it seemed like nothing was happening. Nobody was actually taking this case on. And so I finally went into Joe's office. I think it was like six o'clock on a Thursday night and said like, what do you think? Should we do it? Um, and Joe was up for it. So we immediately made contact with the client and basically, oh, and you mean, you mean specifically for this, like this case, the zoo Oh yeah. Case. So we had never done this before. This was the first time we had ever Whoa. done this type so the of zoo a matter. Case was your first one. I was wondering <laughs> if they, was. like, if you had been known for it and they reached out to you or how, but you reached out to them. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Go on. Um, so we, yeah, so we, we heard about it and that they were desperately looking for an attorney. So, um, we decided like, what the heck, like, this seems like a case that somebody should take on and they're running out of time. So we connected. You must've also looked at your schedule too, knowing that there was so little time. You're like, okay, I'm going to be dedicating the next like 72 hours plus to like nothing but this case, I imagine. Oh my gosh, I wish we'd had 72 hours. I think it was six o'clock or so when we made the first contact with the client. And then um, I actually had a trial the next day. So um, Joe did all the running around the next day and he had to be in Westchester, which is several hours from us at like 8 a.m. the next morning. So we spent the entire night drafting, like researching, trying to come up with what we were going to do. For the the show cause hearing to to get them get a court order to allow the retrieval of the sperm. Yep. Right. Yep. Because the, 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 he was scheduled to be taken off of life support at 3 PM the following day. Mm-hmm. We Actually, had about, do, you mind, oh, do you mind backtracking a little bit? Cause I, I think people don't know he, and the, some people oh, may not know. The yes. Facts yeah, yeah. Tell, so maybe, tell us a little bit about the, the facts the case, that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. That's yeah. You're right. So just to sort of summarize it, basically the, the case, the, the facts were that, um, Peter, who was the subject of the case, he was a 21-year-old college student, um, and he was involved in sort of a freak accident, a skiing accident. And as a result of the accident, he suffered some pretty significant neck and spinal injuries, um, which rendered him brain dead. Um, He was taken to a hospital and kept on life support. Um, He was an organ donor, and so he was scheduled for an an organ retrieval uh, surgery for this Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Um, and then we spoke to his family, as Casey was mentioning, around six o'clock the night before, 
um, because they were hoping to be able to retrieve sperm from Peter's body to be able to preserve his ability to have biological children. Um, and they were told by the hospital that they would have to do the procedure either before or at the same time as the organ retrieval, which was scheduled for 3 p.m. the next day. And given that they were less than 24 hours out, had they, when you talked to them at 6 p.m. the night before, had they pretty much given up hope or where where were they? Yeah, so they had been searching for a couple of days trying to find an attorney. And the listserv that Casey mentioned before was, you know, an attorney listserv where it was sort of going, you know, the, the fact pattern of saying, you know, this family really needs somebody. Is anyone available? Does anyone know what to do? Where do we direct them? Yeah. And so no one had taken the case. And so, yeah, when I talked to them, they, you know, they were pretty much pretty much feeling like they had sort of met run to the end of the line. Um so, and, you know, we we told them when we talked to them, you know, this is not something that we've done before. This is not something that as far as we can tell anyone has done in New York, because there's no existing, there's no law, there's no case law on it. Yeah. There was nothing that we could find from New York that was, you know, of any precedent. Um, but either way, right? So nothing negative either? There, from a legal standpoint, no, there was no sort okay. of, there was no case law or statutory law clear. You know, the, the a majority of our research came through sort of searching like ethical opinions yeah. and, you know, medical journals and things like that, who opined on the, the, the concept sort of abstractly from an ethical standpoint, but, but nothing legally. Yeah. And did you tell them, you're like, I don't know what our chances are, or did you feel I, like yep. we're going to no, do we this? <laughs> well, we, we, we told them we do our best, but we didn't know what the outcome would be. Yeah. We were very candid about that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So from there, what do you do? How'd it go? So we, like Casey said, we were, you know, spent the night drafting this order to show cause and in order to show cause for anyone who's, you know, a non-attorney listening is it's like an emergency petition. Um, we were asking the court um, kind of kind of two things. The first was that the hospital told the family, you know, we, we have the capacity to do this procedure, right? Like it's a possible, medically it's possible, but it's not something that we've done. It's not something that we routinely do. We would need you to obtain a court order authorizing us to do this procedure in order for us to be able to do it for you. Yeah. So that's why, that's what started them on their search for an attorney. Um, and then, so what we did was we filed an order to show cause with the Supreme court asking for an order directing the hospital to conduct this procedure so that the sperm could be retrieved from his body. And then that the sperm would then be taken to a, a cryobank, a, a sperm bank to be cryogenically preserved, frozen and stored while the court decided whether or not the, the, the Peter's parents, the petitioners would be entitled to use it. And if so, for what purposes? So it was I, kind of a twofold question. Yeah, I thought that was very smart in looking at the, the filings that you're like, look, we have this very limited amount of time. We're not making, you don't need to make a decision about use. It could be right. discarded later, but we need to have this retreat now or else we completely lose that opportunity. Right. We figured the court would be a little bit, you know, apprehensive given how new it was and how novel the, yeah. the suggestion was to try to make a decision that day about whether or not his parents should be permitted to use the sperm and for what purposes, et cetera. So we broke it up and just explained, you know, we have to get this done today. We only have until three o'clock this afternoon, you know, so we need this order. And if you, you know, if we don't get the order, then we're going to lose our opportunity forever. 
And how did the judge respond to you? I'm so curious to see like the look on their face in this case. No, the judge was actually really, really great, really sympathetic to the family. Um, what happened was we went in, he, the, the judge, the papers were presented to the judge that was, you know, there to hear emergency applications that day. He called me in. We also got the attorney for the hospital on the phone and, you know, the, the attorney for the hospital basically explained, you know, we don't have a problem with it. We just, you know, this is not standard procedure for us. So we need some guidance from the court. Um, and so, you know, the judge, just it was a pretty brief appearance you know we i made oral arguments uh you know on on why i thought that it was important for the court to grant this order explained that you know we'll come back we'll have a hearing we'll do the whole nine yards afterwards to talk about you know dispositional control and use of the sperm once it's retrieved but for now we just need to focus on the issue of getting the getting the procedure to happen and he signed the order to show cause authorizing the procedure um, you know, sent his condolences to the family and, uh, you know, we were on our way. And I have so many questions, but, um, I mean, do you think you got a lucky draw with the judge or do you feel like anyone hopefully would have been persuaded by those arguments? It's hard to say, but if I would, I, 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 I think yes. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the other part, so in your arguments, they're, they're part of that is this cultural argument mm-hmm. that they express that coming from China, um, their son being the only male heir of that generation who would carry on the last name, it was especially important to their family and that cultural aspect. How much do you think that cultural argument played into it? I mean, cause I, we definitely see these scenarios come up and they don't mm-hmm. always have that, that element as part of it. Right. I think that from a legal standpoint, we, you know, we had a hearing several weeks later after the procedure happened and after the sperm was preserved, we came back and had a hearing on the question of, you know, whether his parents would be able to use the sperm for what purposes, et cetera. And from a legal standpoint, what the judge really hung his hat on was Peter's intentions. And is this what he would have wanted? Is there any reason to think this is not what he would have wanted? Um, And because there was no sort of written documentation, which from Peter before he died saying, you know, this is what I would want to happen in this scenario, because who has that? Because no one has it. (laughs) Yes, I like you're young. Yeah, talk about this a lot. Like no one writes that down. If I die, this is what I want. A healthy twenty-one-year-old guy. It just doesn't happen, right? Yeah, and even when we talk to clients who are going through assisted reproduction, um, they still don't want to sign these forms. So yeah, no chance that a twenty-one-year-old is going to have this. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the judge, kind of, you know, the because there was nothing written, the question at the hearing was sort of what is what was his intention? You know, what would he have wanted? And so there was testimony from his parents about not only how much he wanted to have kids and how he was intending to be a parent and be a father and have a big family. There was testimony from, you know, one of his, um, from someone from his, where he went to college that was there who also talked about, you know, having meetings with him and him talking about his, his future plans and goals, which included marriage, family, children, being a father. Um, and of course, but of course the counter that we always get is it's one thing to plan, to want to have a family while you're alive, but -hmm. there's a distinction when you're no longer around to have those children conceived. Mm -hmm. How did you, how do you deal with that argument? 
So it was, you know, the first half was sort of dealing with this question of, is this something that he would have wanted? And we talked about that. We also talked about the cultural stuff, like you mentioned before, because this, for this particular family, there was this additional cultural component Mm -hmm. where it was very important to not only his parents, but to Peter while he was alive, that this was, you know, that was part of his motivation, part of his driving factor for why he wanted to be a parent and have Mm -hmm. children. So I think that that was an important dynamic in this case. Um, and there was nothing to, you know, suggest otherwise. So the court in sort of a, a, its legal analysis looked to um, the New York's public health law and which is uh, the New York's codification of the Uniform Anatomical Gifts Act. And, you know, essentially it sort of creates this hierarchy of, you know, who gets to make decisions for a decedent when they are incapacitated and unable to make decisions on their own behalf. And in this case, in, in, in pursuant to this sort of statutory hierarchy, normally this, a spouse would be first in line or an adult child, but because Peter died, you know, unmarried without a spouse or children, his parents were kind of the next in line. So the judge sort of recognized that pursuant to this statutory scheme in our public health law, his parents are next in line to make decisions on his behalf. The court agreed with us that a decision about the retrieval of gametes constitutes a, uh, you know, one of the types of decisions that, that they were authorized to make. And then pointed to the fact that he believes that that would be consistent with what Peter would have wanted if he was here and able to tell us what he wanted and that there was nothing to suggest that this would be contrary to Peter's wishes. Yeah. And in your favor and support, there was at least one other time where a somewhat similar scenario happened and the family relied on the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act saying right. that you know, sperm should be part of you know mm-hmm. donating organs, hearts, determining those dispositions, um, which of course is but not way back in 2007 from Iowa, but I saw right. that you guys looked to it pretty heavily that that yep. look, it's, it look, the judge has seen this before and agreed right. to it. It's been done somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And it was nice in that case that they actually had an affidavit from the primary drafter of the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act who said like, yes, when we drafted this, we intended for sperm to be included as one of the types of tissues um, that could be donated. So they had that already, you know, in that proceeding. So it was helpful to be able to pull from that. Absolutely. And I, I will say with that case, when I was looking at it, I was like blown away that in that short period of time that a family needed to go to court, they were able to find one of the drafters of the Uniform, yeah. Uniform Antelope <laughs> Gift Act and get them to write an affidavit and submit that to the court that said, yes, we, we agree that sperm would be covered by this. So I was always impressed by that. Yeah, and that I have was to a say, People seem cooperative in this area because we reached out to the attorneys that had handled these cases in other states, and they were incredibly helpful in sending us their pleadings, even the things that you couldn't find online or on Westlaw or anything. Um, Because I think when these scenarios come up, they're so heartbreaking that anybody who has experience in this area is more than willing to share their expertise to help somebody else achieve the ultimate goal in these cases. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so and let's, that's true. Yeah, we've gotten several calls even since this, since we handled this case, which is only a couple of years ago, from people who have, even in in other states, who have sort of dealt with this issue, have come across you know our name, you know, in researching this issue, and we've done that too, and sent them copies of our pleadings and our paperwork, and so hopefully there are other decisions out there that we've been able to help, and I don't I don't know for sure that there are, but I I hope so. 
and just to give listeners a sense like that this is really a historic decision that from from my research and looking into it i've certainly seen that there's so many cases where um you know survivors just are unable to get over that threshold of you know, providers and hospitals saying no and having right. such a short period of time. And I've written an article about here in Colorado in the last few years where there was like three cases where a man died pretty suddenly and the surviving loved one was trying to have their sperm retrieved. And in two of those cases where the man died in the hospital, the hospital was saying, no, this is not part of our policies and procedures. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't think they were able to get a court order or they didn't go that far. Or they didn't try. I'm not sure the, the full extent, but they were unsuccessful in having sperm retrieved. Mm-hmm. But in a third case where a man was taken directly to the coroner, they, that loved one was successful. So there wasn't the same policies and procedures. So, I mean, I've always been absolutely fascinated by like kind of the randomness almost in this area. Yeah. That is interesting. And I, I don't, it, it could be too that hospital by hospital, the results could have been different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had two cases since this, since the zoo case was decided, both in New York, where, you know, it was a similar type of scenario. And in both cases, the hospitals were just extraordinarily willing to help in any way they could. One of the hospitals didn't even require a court order. They just, they just asked for an affidavit. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I think that's probably true. It could depend on whatever the, the hospital administration is going is well, to allow. And add well, to, and- like, the more complications. Like, in addition to getting this court order, you had to line up all those providers to do it or ha- the family had to. Right. Where not only do you have to have the hospital saying, yes, you have to have the urologist or other, you know, medical professional able to do the retrieval. You have to have right. a place willing to store it. Um, can you speak to, to those kind of logistical hurdles as well yeah that was that that that's true that that is certainly something if anyone is is sort of dealing with one of these cases a very real consideration aside from the legal aspect of things um you know it's getting the hospital to you know first of all be willing to work with you having a urologist on staff who's able and willing to do the procedure getting the court order which authorizes them to do the procedure but then the hospital is 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 not capable of, you know, cryopreserving the sperm once it's retrieved. So you're going to have, you would have to coordinate with a sperm bank, locate a sperm bank who is, you know, in the geographical vicinity and depending where you are in the state, that could be more or less difficult um, of finding some place that you can go and also finding a, a sperm bank that is willing to get involved in a case where you don't have clear consent forms from the person whose genetic material it is for them to store it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we ran into a couple of places that said, like, in this scenario, like, we wouldn't be willing to do it because the person whose material we would be storing can't give consent for us to store their material. So, you know, yeah, we had to find a location that was willing to do it. We had to get, you know, just, for, you know, the, the way that it happens from a from practical standpoint is that the sperm bank provides this vial of liquid medium that the sperm would be deposited in after the removal procedure to preserve it. And it has to be gotten very quickly back to the sperm bank so that it can be cryogenically frozen and preserved because it can't survive outside the body for very long. So, you know, it was a matter of in, in the zoo case in particular, going to, you know, the hospital to meet with the family, going to court to get this court order, going back to the 
hospital to give them the court order, going to the sperm bank to pick up this vial of medium, going back to the hospital for the procedure, wow. and then bringing it back a lot to of the driving. Huh? Was that, and no. was that you? Was, that was me. This? Wow. In, this, wow. in, that case, in that case, it was me. In other cases, it's family members have helped yeah. out too. But in this case, yeah, that was me. Yeah, wow. and we had our paralegals back at the office furiously calling different sperm banks, right. trying to figure out yeah. who would, you know, work with us on this. It was like an all hands on deck scenario that day. Yeah, very yeah, much. And so. how many how many rejections did you get till you got to the one that said yes? Oh gosh, I don't even know. It was a few, and it was a lot of unanswered calls. Yeah. And yeah. You know, we, we started at like eight a.m. because we didn't want to get too far into this if we weren't even going to be able to take that final practical step of you know preserving it if we right. had that court order. So right. So I want to talk about another obstacle that you guys had to deal with and many cases like this have to, to contend with, and that's the ASRM, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Ethics Guidelines. So of yeah. course there are guidelines, but many clinics um, agree or bound, feel bound to, to follow the ethics guideline. And on their guideline of posthumous conception, and you can correct me if I miss like um, summarize it, it essentially says that, you know, if there's written documentation authorizing the procedure by the decedent, then great, you're good. But in the absence of that written documentation of authorization, if a clinic felt compelled to move forward, they should only do so with the partner or spouse of the deceased. Right. How did you guys deal with those guidelines and what are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Well, so we certainly didn't cite that in our brief. Um, <laughs> yes, right, right. <laughs> um, we were well aware of it, but, you know, in terms of legal obligations, we don't, you know, this isn't any kind of legal precedent that we're right. required to submit to the court. Um, it's certainly something that we were aware of and the clients were aware of in terms of ultimately being able to use this firm, even if they got this order and were able to do the retrieval. But we decided not to, you know, put it front and center in our paperwork to the court. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think ultimately, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the court did ultimately cite to it. Yeah, the court found it anyways, yeah, but yeah. but it wasn't there was no ethical obligation on our um on our part to submit it to the court. And I think honestly doing so would have been contrary to our obligation to zealously represent our client. Um, so we were aware of it, but we, we kind of tried to avoid digging into it. Um, but ultimately the judge, you know, kind of agreed with us that while it's, um, that's the recommendation to the medical providers, it, it's not binding on the court in making the determination of use, but the court did say, you know, that ultimately our clients might, um, there might be some hurdles in their future in actually creating a child from this sperm, including finding a clinic or a, a physician who would be willing to work with them under these circumstances. And I, I wanted to save that question towards the end, but I, I just want to ask it. Do you know where they are on if they plan on using it or if they've used it or if they do have those providers that would assist? So that we can't comment on. Got it. Okay. I understand. Um, okay. So can I get your thoughts on the ASRM? ethical guidelines in this area do you do you disagree or how do you how do you feel about them <sighs> I mean I just think that it's I think that if these forms were more widely used that it would make more sense but for the reasons we already talked about the fact that lots of people even when they're going through assisted reproduction don't sign these forms 
And then the fact that the a lot of these scenarios happen so young that nobody's even thought about these things yet, that it's just unrealistic to think that there are going to be these forms in place. And so I guess I kind of favor a case by case analysis of it because like this case really felt like this was the right outcome to us, right. but this would have been prevented if ASRM was, you know, law versus an ethics opinion. That's so yeah. um, I, I think that's where I stand on it. And I, and I don't think the outcome is inconsistent with sort of the spirit of the opinion, because really it, what it, my reading of the ethics opinion is that really the focus is on intent. Mm -hmm. Right. So if there's documentation, obviously that's pretty clear indication of intent. If there's no documentation, um, then you have to look to, you know, external criteria. Um, and even if it was a married couple rather than like a parent child relationship, the court's still going to undertake this same intent analysis. And you're still going to want to, to demonstrate that there was this intent for them to have children. There was this intent to procreate and to have biological children, et cetera. So, you know, it takes it a step further because it's not, you know, we're having a child or children together. Um, but sort of the intent of the decedent to be a parent and to procreate, and is this what the decedent would have wanted? I think that that still applies regardless of, you know, who the petitioning party is. Yeah. And I, I will confess that, so I wrote a law review article about posthumous conception back in 2015 that was published by the Savannah Law um, Journal, which the Savannah Law School doesn't exist anymore, sadly. But in it, I argued really in line with ASRM guidelines that consent was a necessary element. And on the record, I don't feel the same way anymore. And I don't mm -hmm. know if maybe you feel the same way too, that when you're kind of in the trenches and you're seeing the families and right. what they're going through and the loved ones. And just that exactly what you're saying, that reality that people very well would likely consent, just no one does it. Like culturally, sure. society, like no one is has that form in front of them. It's just not a normal thing to sign something or discuss, hey, when I die, I grant you, you know, my right. authorization <laughs> to use my sperm mm -hmm. for conception purposes, all of that in writing. Right. Um, which I would like note for our listeners, please go ahead and do that. Right. Your lawyers, get that done. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, okay. So I know we talked that there is definitely a lot of variation of different states and kind of where you are. What have you seen from that front? Like, do you feel lucky that this happened in New York? I, yes, I do. I think that we really, we were lucky that we, it happened in New York. We were lucky that it happened with a judge who was sympathetic to the circumstances. And I think really, if you read the decision, it's, you know, it's, it's several pages long, but it's really well done and really well thought out. And you can tell that he really grappled with the legal issues, yeah. the ethical issues, and really thought this through. Um, and, you know, so I think it's a really good decision. Um, and then, and the, the result of that is that we've had a handful of cases come up in New York, similar in other counties. Um, and we've been able to cite to this decision and say, look, you know, this is his analysis. This is, you know, sort of what the, and it's not, it's, it's a trial level decision, right? So it's not binding on every court in New York state, but it, it, it's good precedent, Mm -hmm. um, to, to cite to, to show what other courts are thinking and what other court, how other courts have analyzed this issue. And because we've had this decision, 
because we have this decision in New York, we've been successful in at least two other cases of getting courts to do the same thing without having to go through the whole process of bringing the grieving family members in for a hearing. Wow. That's good. Um, practical considerations for anyone in this area or dealing with this case. Um, what would you advise? So I guess the first thing is, you know, if you there, like we said before, there's more to it than just the legal aspect, right? There's coordinating with the hospital. There's, there's the legal aspect. If the hospital is going to require a court order, finding a sperm bank, all of those types of things. The first thing though, I would say is just reach out to the hospital and talk to them about, you know, what's your policy? Are you going to require a court order? Can we do this by, you know, by signing a consent form or an affidavit? Are you going to allow this even if we get a court order? Because that's a good place to start. Um, you know, again, the, the, the time to do this in is super limited. Um, so it's a good place to start there. And then, you know, like Casey was talking about before, assuming that you're successful in obtaining the gametes, uh, you know, that have been, you know, doing the retrieval and then having them preserved, the question of whether you're going to be able to use them and for what purposes is, a, is another question. Right, because just because you have them doesn't require a clinic in the future to help you create embryos using the gametes. Right. And it doesn't require the clinic in the future to you know, do an insemination procedure to help you achieve pregnancy if for their individual clinic policies would, are you know, more in line with what ASRM says and they don't like the way that this all happened. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, in the zoo case, there was that second hearing where you guys went back and argued for use and the judge found in your favor. Right. He said, I mean, he didn't direct a particular use, but the judge said, essentially, I'm going to leave that question up to you, that you guys are the ones who are in the position to make those decisions. And so if you're able to find a doctor, if, and, and, you know, the other thing too, is at that point, they were a couple weeks past the sudden death of their son, right? So they were not in a position at that point to be making really any concrete decisions about future reproductive use. They just wanted to preserve the possibility. And they might, I mean, even still years later, some very well loved ones might still not be in a position to decide. Absolutely. And it could be that, you know, any families in this scenario may decide after, you know, the dust has settled and the year or so has passed that they, they don't, they don't actually want to move forward with, um, you know, procreation you know, using the, the sperm that was retrieved, but they at least, this at least preserves the opportunity to do so. And, you know, I think we've, I've actually seen some articles that talk about this and I can't quote the exact percentage, but it's actually a pretty large percentage of people that go through this process and are successfully able to uh, retrieve gametes that actually ultimately end up deciding not to use them, which is interesting, but Mm. um, it talks about this maybe being like a, a therapeutic thing that in that when this sudden accident happens that it gives them some comfort to know that they're leaving opportunities available for the future, even if when the dust settles, they won't do it. Um, and I think that's why the ASRM, you know, has that recommendation that there be like basically a, a grieving and, and cooling off period, some counseling to happen and all of that before um, they're used after uh, retrieval. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Casey, do you want to touch just really briefly on this other legal element that kind of surrounds this area? And that's kind of recognition of the parent-child relationship, even after a parent is deceased. 
and inheritance that goes with it. And the law, we know, varies incredibly from state to state. Yeah, so this is an important issue in terms of, you know, who's going to be considered the parent, um, because that ties directly to um, inheritance rights, but also to Social Security survivor benefits. And so Mm -hmm. Social Security will look to the state law on parentage to determine whether the child is eligible for those benefits. Um, So then you're looking to state law, and that does vary um, substantially. In New York, we have a somewhat convoluted um, statute, and I won't get into the weeds of it, but it's, again, it's one of those things that almost nobody knows about, and so almost nobody takes all of the steps necessary to um, comply with it. But it does Uh, permit that recognition after we're at, if a child is conceived posthumously, in theory? Uh, yes, but with writings in place. So we're back to that same issue again of nobody has these forms. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And is there a time limit? Because I know in Colorado, we have this thing that there can be that recognition. Similarly, you have to show intent um, and consent and that there ha- the child has to be born within 40, conceived within 36 months or born within 45 months of the deceased person's death. Yeah, in New York, it's in utero 24 months after the death or born within 33 months of the death. Um, And the other problem with that is, you know, if you're going to have multiple children, you might fit one into that time period, but not another, and then they're being treated differently. And I mean, I understand that the timeline is there because estates have to be settled. um, And inheritance purposes, you know, for inheritance purposes, you can't leave estates open forever to determine how many heirs there are going to be. But from a, you know, from a parent's standpoint, that would be unfortunate to have one who's receiving benefits and an inheritance and the other one who's essentially disinherited. Definitely. Wow. Hadn't thought of that. Um, Party, I know you were running out of time, but parting thoughts about the case or the area that you'd like to share. Let's see. I, I I don't know. I think that it's, I'm really happy that there is some law on this issue now, you know, again, it's, it's not appellate law. It's nothing that's gonna, you know, binding everywhere in the world, but it's, it's really good to have something that we can cite people to, to, to give people sort of an, an optimistic, to have an optimistic conversation with incoming clients who are facing this type of a scenario, rather than having to have the conversation we had with the zoo family, which was, I have no idea what to tell you. Um, So that, you know, that's certainly a positive takeaway. Um, And I also think that each time we've done one of these cases, it's been easier than the last. And I don't know if that's just coincidental because of where geographically they were happening or because each time we were able to say one court's done it, two courts have done it, three courts have done it. And so it's getting easier and easier and easier to get these done. Absolutely. My thoughts are one, just to encourage attorneys who are, you know, thinking about doing this to absolutely, as Joe mentioned before, reach out to the hospital first, because we've also had a few inquiries from clients where they didn't ultimately need to go through an expensive legal process. The um, hospital was actually just willing to do it. Um, So I think that's important too. And then ultimately, you know, anybody that's listening that has the ability to influence people to sign these types of forms or to consider it, it really is important because you just never know, you know, most of these are, are accidents, they're not illnesses. So it really is important that people think about this and other forms of estate planning too, when they start, um, their assisted reproduction journey. Yeah. And I will note for listeners, I worked with a, we had a sperm bank director come on the, and had a different episode. I'd love you guys to listen to, but, uh, Dr. Betsy 
Cairo. And we created a form just because they, she was lamenting the same issue that people don't sign these consents and that the sperm bank's hands felt like they were tied. Um, so I will link to the form we created and, um, Casey or Joe, if you guys have a form or anything else that you guys recommend, I'm happy to link to that, to, to make it easy for people. Great. Thank you guys so much for, for joining us and for sharing all of this with us. Yeah. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us on. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you to Joe and Casey for coming on and sharing the story. I'm still just so blown away and impressed by them, especially that they're like, we're going to reach out to them. We're going to take this case. We're going to fight it. I'm just, I know, right. Those are kind of the, you know, the, the, the innovative leaders of our world that see an issue and go for it and fight for it. Right. It makes me feel energized too, that like for yeah. people who are struggling with this, that there really is hope that, that they can get through this and that, that, that everybody has that chance to grow that family if they really want to. So speaking of hope, uh, I'm going to be a very bad transition here. Um, we, we hope that everybody has a great holiday. Um, if you celebrate the upcoming holidays, if you've already celebrated holidays, um, obviously we hope that you had wonderful ones um, because I know there are so many <laughs> in this kind of six to eight week period going on right now. But we are going to take a few week break just so everybody knows that. But in the meantime, please go to our Facebook group and interact there. You can leave us a message at 303-997-1903. We would love to hear thoughts on who people would like to have on with us. We will go chase down guests if people have suggestions. Um, and of course, leave us iTunes reviews. Go check out our merch at the at our website so that you can buy that last minute Christmas gift for everybody. Um, but... Huge or birthday, any or other. Or birthday. Oh, I say, you've got January or, birthday starting coming up. We're thinking ahead, right? Well, I care about you and I want to make you laugh with this sperm with headphones, phone case, or right. shirt. I mean, really, at this point, we could be thinking about Valentine's Day gifts, right? Mm. Oh, you know. that's a good one. Yeah. Right? Definitely. Already, just, just start thinking ahead. It's never too early to buy into the Hallmark holidays. So... <laughs> Um, thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you to our team, to Melissa, to Tyler, to Amanda. And again, like I just said, thank you to all of you for listening and being with us. And we'll talk to you again in a few weeks. Bye.